0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Bank of Ireland is looking out for your financial well-being. They want to help protect you from fraud. So whether it's Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or even just plain old Tuesday, be careful online. Don't assume that every text message or email you get claiming to be from a bank, a delivery service, or any company is legit. And remember... Bank of Ireland will never send you a text message or an email with a link asking for your full 365 PIN number or one-time passcodes, so don't give them out. Search Bank of Ireland Security, and together, this Christmas, we won't let the fraudsters win.
0: Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to another Rugby Life interview. Uh, this week we're talking to Ben Jeffries. Ben's the Chief executive of Pontypool RFC, one of the Legendary clubs of not just Wales but world rugby, I suppose. Uh, he's a son of a local businessman. He became involved in the club at the beginning of the last decade, um, I think, but we'll, we'll clarify that as we go through. Very much a public face of one part of the ever controversial area that we like to call Welsh community rugby. Uh, he's been outspoken in his views about its future, its relationship with the WRU, and the part rugby should play in, in the communities in Wales moving forward. Ben's also perhaps equally well known for his long-running journey with his mental health, which we'll, we'll talk about today. In 2014, Ben said, uh, "There is a pressure growing up in today's world to conform to a particular mould, but I have been at my happiest in life since being myself and doing things in my own way." Welcome, Ben. First of all, and thanks for thanks for coming along and and, and you know allotting some time in your busy schedule, I imagine, to do this.
0: Oh no, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Lee. Uh,
1: that. Quote was interesting. How much do you? How much do you still feel you are doing things your own way?
0: That's a good question. Really, it's uh, been a few years since I said that. Um, yeah, I think it's. Uh, to be totally honest, I think I, I still had a. a was that two thousand fourteen? You said.
1: Yeah, it was an interview when you were when you were. I think you were the marketing director or something at Pontypool then. I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, to be honest, I think I probably still had a fair bit of naivety about uh, what I was going through regarding my mental health because, uh, you know, since then I've had a, a lot of ups and downs, uh, some pretty big downs lately, and and I think I'm gradually getting to the point where I'm learning, but it's it's a lifelong process, and uh, you know, I, I I feel like I've learned the hard way, but just when you feel you've cracked it and and you're you're good to go moving forward, uh, there's always peaks and troughs and. Uh, but yeah you know, obviously it's um, I, I've, I've had my struggles uh, with my own mental health and, and how I feel about myself a lot over the years and uh, I, I think in one sense because it's probably fair to say but there's a there's perhaps a perception of me of, of coming from a, a pretty privileged background and mm. not having your conventional uh, things to worry about so to speak but um, that's actually attached a lot of guilt to me over the years so I think that's probably what I meant by that comment at the time and Uh, Yeah, but obviously, I'm I'm still learning uh, how to manage (laughs) today. Really.
1: So, so what do you say? You learn how to manage today. What are you up to now? I know you've launched a website recently, haven't you? About about being quite open about your mental health stuff. So, what else are you up to, as well as that? I'll tell people about that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I've done predominantly to aid my own recovery. I think because uh, I I got into quite a dark place a few months ago and, and i've been trying to sort of work through that on my own and uh, ended up uh back in in hospital as a result of it so i think it's just an outlet for me to sort of uh, put my my feelings down on paper so to speak and uh, I, I was quite surprised by how much um, the, the initial blog post sort of resonated with a lot of people and uh, had several thousand people read that and, and lots of comments have come my way and and i think it's just a nice reminder that uh you know, it's a it's a big struggle for a lot of people. And, and the only way we can move forward is have that open and honest discussion, because there's, there's plenty of people out there who still think it's a, a fabrication to suffer with mental health problems. And, and the impact that can have on people is, uh, is potentially devastating. So uh, yeah, so I, that, that's something I've just done from a personal point of view, but obviously, still trying to navigate pondy Pool through this uh, COVID crisis, which has proven to be a challenge. But obviously, that's the case for everyone. And Um, And when I'm not doing those things, I'm trying to work on my golf game, but I I don't know which is worse at the minute, the blog, the the golf or or the club, uh, because I'm an embarrassment to the game, to be quite honest with you.
1: I used to play golf quite a bit, and I stopped many years ago. Not for any reason, I just kind of drifted away from it. I play guitar a lot, and and I often equate guitar to being like golf, no matter how long I've been playing it for. There are some days I pick it up and go, I am absolutely shit at it. (laughs) How how am I shit at this again today when I felt like I was all right with it last week? And golf, yeah. that's what, one of the reasons why I keep shying away from golf. I mean, so, so, I mean, golf's not very good for your self-worth, I must say, not to make too much of a joke about it, but, I mean, in all seriousness, you can have a frustrating day out there, can't you?
0: Yeah, uh, and, and to be totally transparent, I smashed my three-wood into about a 1,000 <laughs> pieces last week after six rounds of complete, you can't even call it mediocrity. It's just... <laughs> Dire golf, uh, so, um, that was a bit of a mistake, but uh, luckily it is a good used club market on eBay, which I, uh, I took advantage of, so <laughs> yeah, but uh, but there we go.
1: So, you talked about Pontypool there, um, and this is called a rugby life, and we'll come out of Pontypool. So, I think you became involved in Pontypool in about 2012. You can correct me if that's wrong in a bit, but I suppose my question is, where did where did your rugby life start? <laughs>
0: uh well it started on on the day i started at Pondy pool to be quite honest right. with you uh, i had i had no plan to uh, get involved in rugby uh, uh I hate to admit it now but i, I was a football man growing up um uh, a big arsenal fan and and followed that religiously uh but my dad uh had been quite successful in business and um was was contemplating uh you know moving into retirement at, uh, at that stage and uh, he was a lifelong or still is a lifelong Pontypool supporter and obviously the club hit some dire financial straits through its high court case with the WIU which the the previous directors and shareholders decided was a, a good idea to 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 fight the WIU uh, and they obviously lost and came off second best with can that. You just, can you talk and, some
1: more about that because not everybody listening will know what that high court case was about.
0: I'm sure yeah, you don't yeah, want to sure, go so.
1: back over that too much, we just, we'll just give a bit of a context <laughs> about what that is.
0: Yeah, so in short, uh, the Welsh Rugby Union, uh, in their uh, eternal wisdom, decided that they would restructure the premiership division uh, yet again, and they shrunk it uh, to a 12-team league, and uh, they effectively demoted Pontypool to the newly formed national championship. And uh, this this was despite the club not being in the relegation drop zone. Uh, they hadn't had a great season, but they hadn't had a terrible season either. And it was done on a whole algorithm of six seasons worth of performance and and other parameters to do with facilities in line with the A-license, which they launched, which was sort of a a checkpoint for for Criteria for being a premiership club. Uh,
1: I do love the idea uh, that WRU were world leaders in erroneous algorithms, though. I mean, they're not using world (laughs) leaders in many things, are they? But that's that's quite
0: impressive. (laughs) I'm still trying to wrap my head around the algorithm they come up with because it was just farcical really uh, and, and you know in doing so uh, it, it caused all sorts of a stir with uh, regions one in a, a certain allotment of clubs in their region in the premiership and uh pondipool uh, obviously has a pretty checkered history of having friends outside of uh, its own postcode and i think it, it felt the effects of that to be honest and it was sort of left high and dry which was a, a devastating blow financially for the club um And as I say, the the previous shareholders decided that they'd launch a a fighting fund and it went all the way to the high court. Um, Quite a famous court case in which uh, Roger Lewis, as it was back then, uh, was was pretty uh, vociferous in defending the WIU's corner. Uh, But the the, the previous uh, lot, they effectively gambled all of the club's uh, money, everything that it had uh, in the hope it would win and it lost. So the club was insolvent and was facing... Being totally wound up and, and kicked out of the league structure altogether. And uh, that's where my dad and a, a few other people got involved. And uh, he, here we are, nearly 10 years <laughs> later, still trying to get back to the Premiership. So it's been a strange journey.
1: I I, I read something, I think you, you you seem to have been quite upfront as a public face, almost from the off, really, from 2012 it seems looking back on when you researched this a bit, not that I've been spending hours on this, but it's not hard to find you (laughs) popping up over the past eight years in relation to Pool. And one of the things that you did back then was obviously you mentioned they weren't in the premiership anymore. And one of the things that you set out very clearly back in sort of 2012, 13 publicly was that you want to get back into the premiership and all that kind of stuff. I suppose a couple of parts of this, how hard was it to build that pathway with an insolvent club. And then the other point I'm interested in is, given your mental health issues, and you mentioned OCD in in your history as well, how much of an effect does goal setting like that and then the worry that might create in not reaching them affect you personally?
0: Well, they're two very, very good questions. To answer the second one first, uh, in my case, I found it to be a relief setting goals which were a bit more concrete uh, professionally because to be totally honest with you, I, I had graduated from university with uh, a degree uh, and then I did a master's degree to pass more time and avoid <laughs> um, avoid facing up to a career. And uh, throughout that time, I was just ravaged by OCD. I was housebound. I, I couldn't even make a meal uh, on my own. Uh, my wife had to prepare everything. I was in a terrible, terrible place. I, I, I was so... Uh, concerned with hygiene and, and catching stomach bugs or whatever it were, but I couldn't stop washing my hands, brushing my teeth, getting changed, and all this stuff. It it was it was ter- just absolutely terrible uh, to to live with. But uh, with the club, though, I, I I got involved in it because obviously my dad took the decision to uh, take on the club. Uh, but within weeks of doing so, he suffered a stroke and he'd taken on this huge (laughs) effectively insolvent project and he was in no position to run it so I came in by pure chance as someone who was on his knees quite frankly in terms of his mental and physical state and and was just desperate for an outlet something to to try and do uh, to be productive in so setting those objectives and and, uh, you know knowing what we needed to do to get the club successful or, or what we thought back then was quite positive but I was someone who had no experience in business. I had no experience of running a team, managing a team, leading a team. And all of a sudden I was thrust into this quite public facing role, which I didn't even realize at the time I'd I'd watched Pontypool play probably twice (laughs) before I'd I'd been there. I had no idea of its history and its resonance uh, even today. So I was quite ignorant to what I was walking into. And I think at the time it was probably to my benefit because I think that's what stopped me from getting uh, overwhelmed. and I suppose that dovetails to your first question really about um uh, you know trying to chart our way back. Obviously, we're still in the championship. And I think it's fair to say that, that me certainly not even knowing what I was walking into, but my dad also, I think we grossly underestimated the challenge. Um and, and obviously, you know, Welsh Club rugby has a reputation as being a bit downtrodden, I think. But all in the core ingredients you need to be successful still apply so you need a, a good ethos you need a, a good team spirit you need a structure uh, and it's t- it took us about five years quite honestly to, to really get that embedded uh, you know I, I learned some very harsh lessons trusting some people who now i would never trust uh with, with being involved with the team um you know there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bad people with their own agenda like there is in any walk of life and unfortunately you've got to go through the pain of of learning that the hard way and We've now got a very settled team and a, a a very good environment, I'd say. So it's uh we've learned some hard lessons, but we're in a much better.
1: How uh, you mentioned you didn't, you know, you weren't really paying much attention to rugby at all until you were thrust into it, which is what well, I suppose. Any, I think anybody listening will think what well, you grew up where you grew up and you didn't really know. I think they'll be surprised about, <laughs> but by, by that, I'm certainly surprised by it. But so you came in and um, and and you came. I suppose my question is is. Not carrying all that baggage in, all that, well, the region should never have been created, and you know, this community, you know, the, the, this should still be a professional club, and we've all been destroyed by it all and stuff, and not carrying that sort of cultural baggage in. How much did that help or not? I suppose.
0: Well, it's uh, it's funny, you you mentioned uh, a moment ago, but I've been quite out there from from the outset and uh, you know we had we had two challenges effectively when we first got there we had to stabilize our own house and get that in order and and you know we did that over a period of time uh, but the more i got involved in the game the more i started to get quite agitated by the sheer lack of structure to it and and the lack of investment and uh, the lack of uh, strategic focus really and, and you know here we were trying to move Pontypool forward into a a more professional outfit but the world we were operating in I felt was just an absolute farce you know we, we had no media arm from the Welsh Rugby Union at the time we had to, to fight for any sort of PR and you know that's something uh, we've tried to do ourselves over the years uh, so I, I got more annoyed by it so all of a sudden I found myself Taking a stand on certain things and uh, putting my opinion out there on certain things, and probably to my detriment, if I'm honest, and to the club's detriment, but I I just felt like we could be so much better than than we were. And, uh, you know, being quite young, as it were, and uh, trying to, to, I suppose, gain some confidence in what I was doing, I I sort of, it sort of gave me a bit of a a lift to go out there and try and do it, really. But uh, I've learned. After many years of of trying to do that, but uh, there's only so much you can control, and and Welsh rugby, I think, will always be quite a a strange place, and I think we're we're limited on what we can do, and we've sort of turned our focus far more inward now on on our own house, and I think we're probably seeing the, the results of that as well.
1: I suppose you were let, that was assisted and facilitated by the fact that W I U effectively came out, didn't they? I can't remember how long it was ago ago now, and said you just run your own club now. You don't have to focus on developing players for professional teams beyond. If there's a talented lad there, they'll find it. They'll find him or her. You know. So I think there's... So did, did that help, I suppose? It seems to have helped. I remember your comment at the time saying, now I know what my focus is.
0: Yeah, I, I think we've... Uh, the, the big issue we've had in recent years has been, um, to touch on your point from a moment ago as well, You know, a lot of our supporters feel very alienated uh, for a multitude of reasons. The court case being one, but the concept of the dragons, how it was formed, a mixture of Evervale and Newport and, uh, you know, Gwent, the valleys being lost in all of that, I I suppose. Um, But the problem we've had, I I think, is because we've been effectively told previously that we're a development pathway and that's our purpose. It's sort of cheapened, I I felt, the... Mm. uh, allure and appeal of our leagues because at the end of the day our supporters don't care about developing your next Welsh international they care about winning the league and, and believe you me when we don't achieve that we, we know all about it so we, we know what our supporters want um, and I actually think where the, the WYU have gone with it with uh, this A-team structure and removing that pathway from us is really positive because already in the last year by dropping ring fencing and uh, and bringing promotion back we were seeing uh, bigger crowds than we'd ever had previously. Uh, you know, there was a few headline games where we had close to 2,000 people at Pondipool Park, which in this day and age is, is huge. So uh, I think it shows the, the the direction we need to go. And, and unfortunately, uh, this, this COVID situation has put a huge dent in that um, when we were just finally starting to make a, a fair bit of progress.
1: You mentioned before that you're a, with your OCD and germaphobia and you've not been very well. I mean, you know, even the back end of last year, you were in hospital, weren't you? And it's only since you've come mm. out, you've, you know, give, given your public face on the mental health, another push. How how does somebody, I work out, you know, people who listen, I work out of social care as a living, and I know for a fact that some of our service users who have mental health issues, uh, uh, particularly with paranoia, are becoming really affected by this. You know, it, it is something, it's going to be developing storm, I suppose. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to you know, put the fear <laughs> into anything, but what I'm saying, I suppose my well, question is. I've been
0: thinking about
1: that before. But, you know, but I suppose some of germif- you know, it's a long question this. But I suppose, how is it affecting you given the way that it sounds like your brain treats infection anyway?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, all jokes aside, it, it's a challenge. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've certainly felt the traits from a few years ago creeping back in uh, in recent months, you know, the hand washing and, uh you know every time i leave the house and if i take my phone or something i'm wiping it down when i get back and door handles and all this stuff and trying to be careful but uh yeah i i think it's uh i think it's just it's quite terrifying for those who are particularly vulnerable and and you know my wife has suffered uh with endometriosis for a number of years so she's wow. she falls into that category which should be shielding and uh i i think that's what's making me probably more anxious at the moment is, is making sure I take every precaution uh, to, to lower the risk of her catching it. And and that's, to be honest, that's what happened to me uh, when I was really struggling uh, about 10 years ago, when, when she first got ill, um, she was very seriously unwell as it was at the time. And, and um, you know, it was looking like we were possibly going to lose her at one stage. And, and that's where my hygiene issues really took over. So yeah, there's certainly a pattern, I think, with what's going on at the moment and what I was experiencing back then. Uh, but I, I've got friends who are typically not, um, I will not say they're unhygienic, but they're normal, I suppose, in terms of their right outlook on, on hygiene and uh, you know pre- preparing food and handling food. And even they're starting to think twice and get particularly anxious about it. So I would agree with you there. It's... Uh, I think the mental health impact of this uh, pandemic is is not something we're truly seeing the the impact of right now, but I think the longer this goes on, and, and you combine that with the, the the devastating economic impacts, which we're clearly going to encounter soon, I, I really do fear for the uh, you, you know the prospects of people's mental health moving forward.
1: We'll probably keep jumping in between rugby and mental health as it kind of props up, but I suppose you mentioned devastating economic impacts. Um, and obviously, you run a club, which I imagine. Well, I suppose a couple of questions: How hard is it to remain solvent normally um, as a, as a club at this level in a, in the Welsh League? And how hard is it going to be to remain solvent moving forward? I know you can't give away your strategic plans or anything like that, but you know, just try and help people to understand that. I suppose.
0: Well, you know, we we've never shied away from the fact that uh, you know, Pondypool is propped up by my dad's. Uh, net worth, so to speak, Uh, you know, and we're very fortunate for that because uh, without that uh, cash injection, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing uh, now. And and in the past, in terms of the growth of our squad and and some of the things we're looking to do with our venue, such as uh, redeveloping Pondypool Park. So we're we're stable in the sense of, you know, we're we're not uh, risking insolvency. However, uh, there are challenges but for us. Uh, all of our gate receipts and income stopped overnight, and uh, we project a certain amount of money, which, quite frankly, uh, my father has to inject into the club to keep it in a, a healthy position. And all of our forecasting and all of our planning and budgeting has just gone totally out the window at the moment. Uh, all of our sponsorship has been deferred at least until 2021, because many of our commercial partners who, who are aligned to my father's business interest have obviously uh, had their own issues mm-hmm. at the moment. So we've got zero income, and my job really over the last few months has just been to, to strip out as much expenditure as, as possible uh, to, to effectively mothball the club for when we can get going again. So, uh, but, but in a normal climate, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to run a championship club on the funding that's provided by the WIU uh, there's not really much else you can do other than generate your own income through season tickets match day tickets and sponsorship uh, there's a big gulf between the premiership funding and the championship funding and and I'll be really interested to see in the months ahead with this pandemic whether the WIU are going to move to a, a more strategic focus to, to make everything below the premiership amateur which I know there's been a long held ambition of theirs so I think there's a big discussion at the moment about the, the global calendar, and and I think really even down to our level, it's something we need to think about seriously about the future because uh, there's going to be some huge economic impacts in Welsh club rugby, and uh, even well, obviously at the Premiership, uh, sorry, the professional level, it's even the stakes are even greater. So it's uh, there's so much uncertainty, it's just impossible to forecast and plan.
1: So is it semi-pro at your level? Do you pay? the Pontefrill, and clubs at that in that league pay players? Uh,
0: yeah. So effectively, um, there are th- this A license, which I've referred to before, is is to be a Premiership team. You need this A license, which uh, is a certain um, series of, of requirements in terms of facilities, uh, business structure. Uh, medical criteria, etc., and uh, all the Premiership teams have it, and I believe there's five, four or five of us in the Championship which have it, and, and the WIU's position is uh, anyone who doesn't have that A license shouldn't be paying players. So we are a club which is uh, semi-professional and we pay our players, and uh, obviously, you know, we're not a brown envelope operation, mm. and and we've been able to utilize some of the, the HMRC. Uh, COVID schemes to ensure that our players were looked after because a lot of our players have um, you know, jobs on building sites yeah, or whatever yeah, it yeah. may be and, and, and all of their income has been jeopardised as well so uh, we've, we've done the best we can to provide some stability but I think we're, we're coming to that cliff edge point uh, when that scheme ends uh, over the next few months uh, what we do as a club and, and I'm sure that's a discussion that many businesses are having at this time as well
1: ACAST recommends podcasts we love. Changemakers is a new
0: podcast series with me, Claire McKenna.
1: Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including The David McWilliams Podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. So jumping back to you, you mentioned that you've, you know, you, you've always been quite prominent Literally, you you know your your face is is very prominent right from twenty twelve, and that you made some mistakes back then. However, re- reflecting back to you, I mean, obviously you seem as prominent now as you were then. And he you said you'd learned some lessons. So, so is it lessons about how you express yourself when you are going out in public, or is or because it's or have you cut back the amount of kind of public stuff you're doing? How how the yeah, lessons I, learned impacted.
0: I think. Uh... To be, to be quite frank about it, I was like a bull in a china shop when I started. <laughs> uh, I I didn't care who I offended. I didn't care what uh, people thought about my views. Uh, I had my opinion, and and if I saw an injustice, as it were, in in Welsh rugby or, or whatever it may be, I was going to call it out. And, and um, you know, I sort of put myself front and center uh, in in the whole trying to get the. The WIU board turfed out um, when David Moffat came back, and uh, I think I was one of four people who put their hands up to to vote for for that at the um, emergency general meeting, and and just felt an immediate sense of uh, (laughs) (laughs) loneliness. Exactly. Um, But you know, as I've got a bit older, I I just I think I quite honestly tried to mature a bit and realise that there's there's more way more than one way to skin a cat, and. it's in nobody's interest to uh, effectively go out of your way to to leave a trail of destruction. If I'm honest, and I think some of my behaviour in my early days was was a bit unhinged and a bit unpolished. And you know, albeit I think I was fighting some noble causes. If, if you can't do that in the most productive way, then you, you're probably a hindrance to those uh, the, the solutions you're trying to find. So um, I think these days I've just pick a pick in my battles. For things like an influence, um, you know, at a, at a grassroots level here, but also just trying to be a bit more positive, and I think that's where the mental health stuff has come in. Mm. Um, trying to have some open and engaging conversations with people about that, and um, instead, rather than having a pop at the WIU or the, the injustices of Welsh rugby, I'm sort of calling out people who are trolling people for having depression or anxiety because you know it's that sort of trolling which is really devastating to some people. And uh, so yeah, I think the lessons I've learned have just been, you know, the, the, to, to be a bit more mature, be, be a bit more methodical. Uh, whether I am or not, I don't know. Uh, you'll have to tell me. But uh, <laughs> um, but it's a it's a it's a lifelong process, maturing, I suppose. And uh, I've certainly learnt uh, some lessons along the way.
1: I think what you find is that your partners don't go away, do they? And they all are. Everyone in it is your partner, one way or another, aren't they? The WIU, yeah. the clubs, you got to, And in any in any walk of life you work it it's exactly the same there are people that completely do your head in but they're not going to go anywhere and also the the really annoying thing is that people that you think you you get really fed up with sometimes have something sensible to say and if you stop listening then that's lost isn't it and it's and it must be particularly difficult when it gets so vociferous as it can do in welsh rugby you know
0: yeah precisely and and i'll be honest as well i think uh you know, reflecting on my own behavior over the years, I, I I don't think I fully appreciated everybody else's point of view on things. I came in, didn't know the history of the game, mm. saw some issues I felt needed some some pretty quick uh, attention, and and that was my focus. And and if anyone else was in the way, you know, they were a blazer or, uh, you know, they were a blocker to change. And and like you say, over time, the more you alienate, the more you alienate yourself from people, the more a, you don't listen to other people's views, but B, the less they listen to your views. And I think, I would certainly hope anyway, over the last couple of years with some of the changes that WIU have made, uh, I've been more proactive in having the right conversations at the right levels rather than tweeting something or, or you know, getting some column inches in a newspaper because it's well, it's not always appropriate. So, um you know, I've only just ended my thirties, and uh, you know, I was probably a bit too young and a bit too boisterous to take on the the role I I did take on, um, and I made some pretty big mistakes along the way. But uh, I I genuinely. I mean,
1: you're you're two, Ben. Uh, yeah. It was- <laughs> so, do a quick maths in my head, you were twenty two with an admittedly not much background in this world. I don't know anybody who wouldn't have come in and made a, a shitload of mistakes and done some yeah. good stuff as well. I think this. There's something to be said for taking it on, especially in the midst of, as you said, your dad being very unwell, and and everything else you had going on. Interestingly, when it, that interview from 2014 that I took the quote from before, you were being quite open about your OCD even then. And this is in the midst of you, as you say, being quite vociferously vocal about things you didn't like, and and still in that kind of learning phase. Help me, help me, and people listen. Explain your kind of thought process on being that open and. Or was it a thought process and what that might open you up to?
0: It's, again, it's a good question. I, I, uh, I'd, I've struggled with this since I was a child. And I can look back on things throughout my childhood, which I, I thought were just what everyone else did, whether it be OCD, which was really the, the first issue I had uh, growing up. Uh, and I'd spent so long and so many years, right up until I, I got into my early 20s, hiding away, for over my wife and to some extent my parents but not a great deal nobody knew I was going through what I was going through and uh I don't know really I just sort of felt uh, compelled at some point I started getting some some therapy and treatment and uh I think at one point I just decided to put it out there and uh I, I don't really know what my objective was it just I just felt like it, it was for me something I needed to do and uh you know, I, I just don't consider myself to be uh, any sort of a, a, a recognizable face. So when I put it out there, I was expecting nothing. And and the response I had even then a few years ago was, was it, it was, you know, I, I hadn't cried for many years. Like I, I just blocked so much away, but mm. all that positivity and support, it just completely overwhelmed me. And uh, it was at that moment where I realized, you know, there's a lot of this out there and uh, I've sort of, made it a, a regular thing of mine ever since to just uh keep talking about it and uh and I think to be honest that's one of the areas I sort of fell down in recent months when, when I ended back up in hospital because I'd stopped talking and it's only through doing this blog and speaking out a little bit again hmm. uh but but I realized that actually those people haven't gone away uh, you just have to engage in those conversations so um
1: are you winning any of those battles <laughs>
0: um it's a difficult one because I, I i'm certainly better than i was um, much better because i think it was march uh when i went back to hospital i i was done i was done i i, I specifically
1: meant the battles you're having with uh, with discussing with people to try and change their mind that's what i was meant oh, I, you know, I don't Excuse me. i don't like to describe a, a mental health thing as a battle i find it's not helpful language if you like but it's a but yeah. but yeah, please do carry on. I just wanted to, to check that I wasn't I didn't I wasn't using the wrong you know, making you ask, answer a question that's a bit unfair perhaps. But
0: no no no, to be honest, I think it's a it's a fair question. But uh, but no, it, you know, to, to answer your question, I I don't think we'll ever win that battle, and that's a depressing thing to say. Uh, pardon the, the the pun, but uh, you know, you, you, you'll always have people who are just so ignorant, and for some reason seem to want to go out of their way to try and make someone else miserable. And that's the worst part of social media and, it, and and that ability to give people a platform where they, they will not say it to your face. Uh, and there's a, there's a, there's a fan of, uh, cross keys who I won't name, but everybody who knows me will know him who has just for years been abusing me about depression, my family, uh, me as a person, uh, and I confronted him at our game in December and said, "How about we step outside and have a chat?" Wouldn't do it because mm-hmm. there's something about this, the 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 security of a keyboard which these people find uh, quite empowering. And um, you know, I got no problem with confronting people who, who who act so inappropriately and and take liberties with people's mental health. It's um it's something that's never really bothered me, but it, it frustrates me because it's it's the number one barrier to people getting healthy and. That's something we really have to change uh, in a big way moving forward.
1: I um I ask you this. I'll give you some context before I ask you this question. My um I I've not had mental health problems, but my mum is a lifelong sufferer with clinical depression, and she uh, voluntarily hospitalised herself just over a decade ago. And uh, and your description in your blog purchase, uh, your blog post about what these places are like they're like the most depressing sort of two star hotel you've ever been in. You know, and that you go if if you if you felt depressed before you went in, and this isn't a joke. When you go in and see the, and it was a unit in North Wales. My mum was in, you know, and the bed screwed to the floor, and the whole environment suggests how you should feel about yourself. I can't speak for the one you went in, but certainly that bit about mesh and everything taken away from you and things screwed down and stuff. And anyway, my mum is 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 a ballsy, uh, funny, Lancashire woman, right. And when she was in there, she was not a person I recognized anymore. She she wasn't the person that I knew as my mum. She felt yeah. completely unloved. I don't actually I believe that I loved her at that point. That's how bad it was, you know, and it's been a very, very long journey back from her. Now, the reason why I give you that concept is want to, to to be very clear. I'm not one of these people who thinks that somehow something shouldn't mean you have mental health problems or how happy you are or anything like that or whatever your bloody economic background is. That's all total not a bollocks. So anybody who is listening might think that, Please. Please have a think. But um, I'm asking because obviously you mentioned right at the top about it being a lifelong thing and you've been through some therapy. What my mum learned to do was was to accept it's part of who she is now and she has to live with it. And so therefore I remember phoning her once. We used to work for the same uh, county, believe it or not. And I phoned her and said, I'm going to come for lunch. I'll be there about 20 past one. She said, no, I can't go then. I said, why? She said, I'll go to lunch at half one. And I kind of rolled my eyes a bit, but then I remembered that that's how she was quite close to her recovery period, it's still in the middle of it, so that's how she managed the day. She has routines, she's vociferate she's really really um, um obsessed with her sleep patterns and all that kind of stuff because that's how she stays well, otherwise she'll be in hospital and not working and all that kind of stuff. Now I suppose my question is 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 how much of your the the behaviors that are affected that are caused by you driven by your conditions? Do you accept as part of you now, or something that you're still fighting with?
0: I think that's an excellent point, and and that's something I really, really wrestled with uh, over the years because, uh, yeah, and and you know we've we've just spoken about sort of how I behaved in the past and and how bullshy I was about things, but you know on the surface that would appear, and 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 with good reason I would say, based on on what people would probably think of me as someone who's quite entitled, uh, privileged, you know, has no consequences for their actions, not bothered about what they say, doesn't care what anyone thinks about them. But what I've identified over the years is I was acting that way to counterbalance the sheer lack of control I felt I had in my private and personal life. And, you know, on one side of the coin, uh, there was me in this public persona who would take on the the top brass at a WIU or you know battle for what I believed in. But on the other side of the coin, when that person went home uh, or, or never even left his home, was someone who absolutely hated himself, uh, had zero self confidence, zero self belief, uh, despite the fact that I've obviously got this this very good position which I'm fortunate to be in and and you know I've been very fortunate over the years to have had some uh, some tremendous experiences in my life despite it all I had zero sense of happiness or contentment or fulfillment you know I got a great wife uh, you know anything that your average 20 year old would want I could have had and none of it made me feel good happy or, or positive about myself and what I've really tried to to figure out in recent years and I think that sort of explains what I was talking about a moment ago about trying to change was no matter how much of a hard ass I appear in public and someone who doesn't get crossed by anybody and you know a hard business-minded person it doesn't matter really because if that's not who you are uh, and that's not what you're about it's pointless acting and chasing something but isn't you and where I've tried to go back a few steps is you know what i don't need to be that person i 'm someone who's trying to work something out who I am, what drives me. Um, you know there's a reason for why I've been so unhappy over over the last few years, and it's been a case of identifying what that is and I, and I think I'm getting somewhere with it now um, but but you mentioned about routine and structure and everything and and I'm finding but if I lose my routine, everything else falls down and that, that's probably the biggest challenge I've got right now in terms of trying to stay healthy is. You know, there's not much to get up for at the moment. And it, does it matter if you go to bed quite late? You know, there's lots of food in your fridge. Uh, who cares if you eat all of it today? You know, it's it's that sort of attitude. And and when you let one or two things fall away, that's when your motivation for everything else falls away. Um, so it's sort of like a it's two strands for me. There's the part about who I am and, and trying to find some contentment with that. But there's also the functional part, uh, which I think touches on what you were saying, where what do you have to do day to day to give you the best chance to be in a good place to focus on the rest of it so it doesn't take much for the whole lot to fall down and I think that's the that's the bit which still scares me to this day if I'm honest
1: and um so in terms of things like therapy that that is on if you don't you know obviously you can you don't have to answer any question you don't know to answer but is your therapy ongoing and do you see that being as something that will be ongoing for a very long time
0: yeah i I to be honest, I, I was planning on being in the in the Priory for a month uh, in March, uh, but th- there was uh, there was some issues with COVID in the hospital as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was quite keen to, to get out of there. Um, so I have got another two weeks, of, which will be done as a day patient now, uh, waiting for me, which is largely group therapy, which I was quite uh, reluctant to participate in at first. But it's uh, it, that, of everything that surprised me the most of just how empowering that can be to be around like-minded people who are going through the same thing uh so i'm looking forward to getting that uh going again in, in due course but yeah I, i'm still having one-to-one uh sessions with my therapist uh via uh, skype or whatever it may be and and i think that's something i'm gonna have to have for for a long time because even though i've sort of got some of my equilibrium back this is far from the finished article and uh I readily accept there's still a lot that I've got to work on in the in the months ahead.
1: You mentioned the term looking forward there um how How easy is it for you to look forward both for yourself and for the club
0: uh it's It's difficult because uh you know this is not really something I've talked about too much publicly before, but uh i I really massively struggle with my Myself and uh, my purpose and my abilities, to be honest with you, and uh, I i always have this sort of fear that I, I I don't know enough to to deal with a situation or I'm not going to deal with something in the right way. And I think what we've got at the moment, where for now everything's just stopped. You know, there's not much more I got or anybody else can do at the rugby club. We're at the mercy of. Uh, the Welsh government, the future of this this pandemic, and and the WIU in, in what they decide to do. Uh, but the the problem I've got at the moment is this this lull uh, is giving me far too much time to think, and I do better when I don't have too much time to think, and and you do things sort of second nature. Uh, so this is a huge challenge for me personally. But in terms of the club, I I think uh, you know we 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 have uh, prepared as best as we can for next season whenever it starts so we've continued with recruitment to some extent uh, trying to keep things stable and keep our supporters informed so so when we can move forward uh, we're in a good position to to go again.
1: I think that's probably a good time to finish you off Ben. Um, thank you very much. Incredibly oh, powerful stuff. Incredibly honest. Um, I suppose my last question is is do you do you st- do you still have feelings of regret for opening up as much as you do? I think it's fantastic. I think I think the more people in leadership positions like yourself need to do stuff like this, and I, and so people can start to understand that it is real, and you can still actually do a job, but it's hard bloody work. You know, yeah. Alistair, Alistair <laughs> Campbell always talks about with his his problems. He says, "Yeah, I'm okay now, but people never mention that I run marathons and I run this, you know, and I do all this stuff, and I don't drink anymore, and and all that kind of stuff." Um, so I think it's amazing. So. I suppose the last thing is, is that how comfortable are you now with, with the position you've given yourself?
0: I'm totally at ease with speaking out, and I'm totally at ease with uh, being somewhat of an open book with, with this, this kind of thing. Uh, I think to touch on my, my earlier point, really, I spent so many years uh, giving a, a, an impression of me, that just was so way off, so left field. Uh, which was just not in any way aligned to to the reality of of who I am, and the more you do that, the more you build a pressure within yourself to live up to it, uh, and and the more I was feeling that pressure not to make any mistakes. Whereas now I've sort of tried to wind the clocks back a little bit and say, like, this is what I'm dealing with. This is who I am. Uh, you know, I've made some mistakes in my past. I've been a bit uh, probably aggressive in certain areas, and uh, you know, yeah, I have regrets in that. In that respect, um, but all you can do is, is sort of hold your hands up uh, to past mistakes, try and improve and change, and, and move forward. And I think by talking and, and speaking out, it's, it's given me the best opportunity to do that because certainly in the last few months, the pressure I'd built up uh, because you know one, one thing I won't uh, labour the point too much, but of course, I'd, spoken out, cause I'd spoken out because uh, I'd spoken out a few years ago and. Uh, you know, in quite graphic detail about the OCD and everything. Over time, the more interviews you give and and the more you speak to people, the more charities and whatever it may be want to speak to success stories. Uh, they generally don't want to speak to people who are in yes. the middle of a crisis. The survival I, word. Exactly. Yeah, and and I felt a massive pressure with that uh, to not admit that I'd fallen down again. And I mean, as, as uh, late as last October, I'd headlined. Time to change Wales uh, World Mental Health Day. And I spoke as like a, a reformed, uh, cured person almost. But at that time, I mean, I was suicidal at that point mm. in time. I was, I was gone, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I just didn't want to admit it outside of my own my own bubble. Whereas now, the decks have, have sort of been white clear, and I think people know what's gone on. And, and certainly, for, for myself, I think that's that's helped me to just say, like, here's where I am. You may not get the best out of me for um for, for the moment but i'm working on it and you know the, the support i've had off people i've never even met has just been incredible and and the chance to, to come on this program is is something i'm really grateful for because uh you know it shows that people like yourself uh are, are open to having these conversations and, and i think these are the most important things you know people coming on sharing their experiences and hopefully it will just encourage someone else to take that step to to get on the road to recovery, recovery themselves.
1: And I think we'll all say amen to that, Ben. Thanks very much. If you want to find Ben, um, just tell people what your Twitter handle is, Ben.
0: Uh, best place to find me is uh, Ben Jeffries on Twitter. And uh, Jeffries with
1: an E Y, isn't it? Not an I E. Uh,
0: J E F R E Y S.
1: Yeah. Um, and your podcast, your blog is the Mind Field Podcast. But obviously, they'll find the links to the Twitter, won't they? I guess so.
0: Yeah, it's on my uh, on my Twitter profile.
1: Yeah, so go and uh, have a read of Ben's stuff, not just because of the, the mental health stuff's incredible, but actually I've learned, I've probably learned most of what I know about the inner workings of, of how a small club tries to cope with all this stuff in Wales through reading your posts. that I do with anything else because they're snappy and they're informative and it's been great for me. So keep doing that. And, uh, and don't, yeah. please go there, go there, be nice to Ben. Don't do any of that other shit that you are <laughs> to put up with, all right? <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thanks very much.
0: No, thanks for the time. Appreciate it.